Good morning, friends. Good morning. Awesome. It is good to be with you all today. Uh, my name is Kelly. I'm the student pastor here at Urban Village South Loop. Um, my pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, and again, we are excited that you're with us. Um, so as you see, sorry, not sorry. Uh, that is the name of the sermon series that we are going through about what is true forgiveness. And, you know, I tried to get the band to sing uh, this for us for Sunday, but unfortunately my plea for Demi Lovato to come and debut here at UBC was a bust. <laughs> but sorry to disappoint you all. I know you're mad with me. Uh, this sermon series has been and probably will be continuing to be a challenging one, but a good one. Um, and I'm excited to see what truth God reveals. Um, so let's pray. Dear God, Heavenly Father and Mother, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for being present um, as we felt your Holy Spirit move with us this morning. Um, God, I pray that you would just speak through my words, um, that they would be yours. I would de deliver a message of truth and of hope, of challenge and of grace, God, as we come before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're just coming off of a sermon series where we talked about what it means to be made in God's image for all of its goodness, regardless of gender. It also bears exploring the shadow side of being human, too. We're imperfect, which means sometimes that others are also imperfect and don't always behave or respond to us in the way that we would desire. Sometimes that results in stories like Dawn's or any of, a, any of our own where we know that we or others have fallen short. And sometimes that leads to some negative emotions along the way. About a month and a half ago, Gillette released an ad about toxic masculinity that gave the nation a little shake as they portrayed a message to men that they believed in them to be better and to rise above what is toxic masculinity. This concept is described as a narrow and repressive description of manhood, designating manhood as defined by violence, sex, status, and aggression. It's a cultural idea of manliness where strength is everything, while emotions are a weakness, where sex and brutality are yardsticks by which men are measured, while supposedly feminine traits, which can range from emotional vulnerability to simply not being hypersexual, are the means by which your status as man can be taken away. That quote comes from an organization called Teaching Tolerance, who self-described their mission as being to help teachers and schools educate children and youth to be active participants in a diverse democracy. The ad from Gillette comes with the tag, the best that men can be, saying that they believe men could be the best they could be. So we're going to take a look at that clip now. Bullying. The Me Too movement against sexual harassment. Is this the best a man can get? Is it? We can't hide from it. Sexual harassment is taking over. It's been going on far too long. We can't laugh it off. Who's the daddy? What I actually think she's trying to say. Making the same old excuses. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. But something finally changed. Allegations regarding sexual assault and sexual harassment. But she says he's and there will be no going back. Because we 
We believe in the best in men. Men need to hold other men accountable. Smile, sweetie. Come on. To say the right thing. To act the right way. Bro, not cool. Not cool. Some already are. In ways big. Yo, men. And small. I am strong. I am strong. But some is not enough. It's not how we treat each other, okay? Okay. Because the boys watching today will be the men of tomorrow. Now, the reactions were varied. Female identifying people, for the most part, were pumped. Gillette was using their social platform that they had established in over 200 countries, with more than 60% of their sales occurring outside of the United States. Overall, about 63% of the responses in the first two weeks after the ad were positive. However, a minority voice can still be loud, and the attacks of negativity began to come quickly. Some men, and I emphasize some, were enraged over the ad, saying that it was insinuating that all men are bad and etc. Within toxic masculinity, the only real emotion that men are allowed to feel is anger. And here we have a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're gonna show some of the responses that happened. Take a second to read through these. We'll kind of play them through. I hope I didn't offend anyone through showing some of these responses. And if it, if it did, I apologize, and we could talk later. Um, but here's the thing. Gillette is literally putting money where its mouth is. The brand has pledged a million dollars a year in donations to youth organizations like the Boys and Girls Club of America. And yet, the response from several men about the work that Gillette was doing was rooted in anger. We're going to jump into the parable now, um, so if it helps to close your eyes and imagine it with me, go for it. Imagine that you're watching the scene unfold. The servant who owes the high king more money than existed in the country at the time is laying in front of the king, begging to be forgiven. He knows that he can't pay the debt probably has that difficult, anxious feeling one sometimes gets when they know that something bad is happening. He knows that most likely his future holds him and the rest of his family being sold as per the custom in that day. Instead, the king has pity on him, 
and not only releases him from being sold, but also completely forgives the debt. Imagine as you watch the servant walk away, what he'd be feeling, maybe what he was doing. I grew up learning this parable in Sunday school. The denarius was one day's wage for a typical day laborer who worked six days a week with a Sabbath day of rest, allowing approximately two weeks for various Jewish holidays. The typical laborer worked 50 weeks of the year and earned an annual wage of about 300 denarii. Now suppose you continue to work a day laborer earning 300 denarii each year. After 20 years of such labor, you have earned 6,000 denarii. At this point, the king would say to his debtor, congratulations, you have worked for 20 years and you can now pay back one talent. There's only 9,999 talents to go. The debt was more money um, than was even being circulated in that system at the time. I'm not sure how they would have gotten to this point, um, but we know that Jesus is using a little bit of hyperbole here to show just how much worth that grace was. Those who have little, such as these servants, often feel compassion more acutely than those who have much. They are also more sensitive to injustice because they know how it feels to be the victim of injustice. Also, there is an unwritten rule in those days that obligated those whose debts were forgiven to forgive any and all of those who owed them money. Based off of these two things, the servant should have had a pretty easy next faithful step. Everyone would have expected this forgiven servant to abide by that rule and would all be highly offended when he failed to do so. The same servant, the one who's excused of more than a lifetime of debt, walks away a free man and immediately meets a person who owed him about an hour's worth of wages. He gets angry with this man for not paying him back as if he hadn't just been forgiven for something he had no way of paying back. More money than was even being circulated, one hour's worth of wages. And instead of showing grace to his friend, he had him thrown in prison. It seems that the servant has missed the experience of grace altogether. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace. He says it is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, Cheap grace is to hear the gospel preached as follows. Of course you have sinned, but now everything is forgiven, so you can stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. The problem of such a statement is that it contains no demand for discipleship. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. We act from a motivation of grace and salvation. We have received an unearned gift, and because of this, we hope to live differently than we would or maybe have before. We're challenged to usher in a more just world, which can be hard when there is so much injustice. It can be easy to give in to anger, especially when it is taught as a more acceptable emotion to feel than sadness or vulnerability, especially for male-identifying people. When we looked at that example of the Gillette ad, we can maybe guess that some of their anger was coming from a place of feeling vulnerable 
of feeling confronted, of the years of being told that those things in the ad were normal. Through this parable of the unmerciful servant, we explore the consequences of receiving a grace that we do not allow to motivate us to act differently and more justly. We seek to acknowledge that anger itself is not inherently wrong. Jesus experienced and acted upon righteous anger several times throughout the Gospels. However, often our anger towards ourselves or others is derived from hatred, envy, jealousy, or other unrighteous starting points. We have an American individualist culture that teaches us that we must rise to the challenge to take what is ours, that if someone does wrong against us, it's right to respond in anger. Here we see a warning against such actions that once again we are called to radical grace, even if only possible through Jesus, to choose a new response. However, it's still a thing. It still perpetuates our society, especially in anger er, in America. I was listening to a podcast this week called Why is America So Angry? Anger is described this way. It's one of the densest forms of communication, conveys more information more quickly than almost any other type of emotion. Back in 1991, when Avril, who's the author of this podcast, first conducted his study of average people and anger, the assumption was that more mature people were able to repress their anger or never feel it. In the vast majority of cases, as Avril saying, Expressing anger resulted in all parties becoming more willing to listen, more inclined to speak honestly, more accommodating of each other's complaints. People reported that they tended to be much happier after yelling at an offending party. They felt relieved, more optimistic about the future, more energized. The ratio of beneficial to harmful responses was about three to one. Even the targets of those outbursts agreed that the shouting and recommendations had helped. They served as signals for the wrongdoers to listen more carefully and change their ways. More than two-thirds of the recipients of anger said they came to realize their own faults. Their relationship with the angry person was reportedly strengthened more often than it was weakened, and the targets more often gained rather than lost respect for the angry person. When I heard that, I didn't necessarily feel like that matched our context of 2019. Perhaps this works maybe in close relationships still, but the tenor of our anger has shifted. It's become less episodic and more persistent, rather like a constant drumbeat that's in our lives. It's directed less often at people that we know and more often at distant groups that we can demonize. These far-off targets may or may not have earned our fury either way, but they're apt to be less invested in resolving our differences. Averill refers to those close relationships that were helpful as a tight feedback loop, but now that's been broken. When we have this constant feeling that we don't know what to do with it and we don't have a release or freeing of our emotions, our anger builds up within us, just like Don was saying earlier exerting an unwanted pressure that can have a pretty dark consequence. The desire not merely to be heard, but to hurt those we believe have wronged us. 
Anger, when dealt with carefully, though, can indeed help us to move into healthier spaces. However, it's not that hard to tip the scale in the other direction. In the Bible, there are different kinds of anger that are represented. For example, Jesus expressed righteous anger when he flipped over the tables of some peddlers and salesmen who were treating the temple like a market. When we are seeking righteous anger, we are angry about things that disrupt God's presence in the world, like racism, like sexism, like oppression of immigrants. We care more about that than our own privilege and pride when we are seeking righteous anger. Ultimately, righteous anger is born out of love for those that God loves. On the flip side, unrighteous anger usually comes from self-preservation, pride, insecurity, a need to prove oneself rather than working to extend God's love to others, quick emotional reactions rather than thought out, discerned anger about the things that are injustices in our world. Um, for this next part, I have a bit of a content warning. We're going to be talking about um, some racially charged violence. And so if this is um, hard or uncomfortable, I invite you um, to take, take steps out or take any steps that you need um, to take care of yourself. This past weekend, um, last Sunday, I was not at church because I was with the Inclusive Collective, which is a college ministry that partners with Urban Village. They're having their annual spring retreat uh, where the group goes and is present in a city to simply learn and hear stories of the people there and some of the injustices that have occurred. We then proceeded to have conversations around how we can step forward faithfully, attempting to find justice and make public changes in our systems that reflect God's love. Um, like we said earlier, we show up here at Urban Village every week to create inclusive, Jesus-loving communities that ignite the city. Part of that igniting has been and will continue to be around racial justice. This weekend, we with the Inclusive Collective went to Ferguson, which is the municipality in which Michael Brown, an 18-year-old black kid, was shot six times and murdered by a policeman by the name of Darren Wilson. He was killed on August 9th, 2014, in broad daylight, and was left lying in the street for five hours, most of which he lay uncovered. Eyewitness accounts were not allowed to testify. Darren Wilson was never prosecuted and is now working in insurance, living less than 20 minutes where the incident happened. We went and stood in the street where all this occurred. We stood together almost five years after in this place where an incomprehensible tragedy happened. As I sat with students, many of whom were people of color on a silent bus ride back, a student next to me was processing his emotion of this as what I can only call holy rage. I was processing it as shock as I read his birthday and saw again that it was only six months before mine. As we continued to talk that evening, the idea of forgiveness was a hard one to wrap our minds around. The death of an unarmed black teenager is far from the only one. And that kind of injustice does not feel like it deserves forgiveness. 
especially when the person who killed him was given no repercussions. That night we caucused, just separating into groups of people of color and white people um, so that people of color could have a safe space without having to code switch or be burdened. Also, this is a space for white people to have some pretty honest conversations and do the work necessary to process the stirrings that were happening in our heart and brainstorm ways to be allies well and justly. Anger here is and was preceding forgiveness. Often we see that the cycle begins with anger or other emotions before we are moved to forgiveness. So how do we get from A to B? What's the journey that brings us from potentially getting stuck in a storm of emotion to being moved into action, whether that is forgiving someone, giving grace, and or changing the systems? If I can generalize, I think I can say that many of us here have seen or experienced anger not handled well. It can cause a great deal of pain and trauma and abuse. And anger and resentment can also be valid responses to experiencing those things. The reality is that anger needs to be acknowledged and processed, even though most people are not comfortable with their anger in the first place. I also think that several of, several of us may have been introduced to an overemphasized wrathful God and an un, underrepresented merciful and all-loving God somewhere along our journeys. The Bible says, when angry, do not sin. Do not ever let your wrath, your exasperation, your fury or indignation last until the sun goes down. Leave no such room or foothold. These verses don't say, don't get angry, or if you ever get angry. They say when you are angry. God already knew we would have times that we would experience anger, and she made preparations through the word and instruction of how to respond to it. This week I did what any millennial in my position would do. I turned to an additional source and set out to Google. Quick Google search. What should Christians do when they're angry? Y'all, did you know how many 20-something Christian white girl bloggers there are out there? Like, I knew they existed, but they a lot. But honestly, I was surprised that several of them were talking about anger, whereas men who are embedded in toxic masculinity are only allowed to feel anger strongly. Women are not, especially women of color. But here are a couple things that I found. Don't let anger control you. Address it in love, because it's that easy. Don't seek revenge when mistreated. Share God's generosity. Get help for your problem before you help another. The reality is, these things aren't easy. How do you forgive those who continue to do injustice against you and make you angry? How do you respond to things that fill you with holy rage? How do you temper anger when it's coming from insecurity or quick emotional responses or from being hurt by someone? And the answer is, I can't answer all those questions in a sermon. Sometimes I'm not even sure what the answer is. Other times, I'm thankful for people who have come alongside me and helped me process it. If I can speak honestly, I've learned that anger, when not processed, can become a volcano that burns you from the inside until it finally erupts and can also burn all who are around you. It's how I've experienced anger. 
I don't necessarily express it in a loud eruption of emotions, but it comes through in other ways. Granted, I think sometimes our anger can indeed cause us to flip tables as Jesus did when he came across those people who were disrupting a temple space. He was protesting and shaking things up with a little bit of holy rage. I think our holy rage, much like the student I spoke to over the weekend, should spark us to action, to shake things up and to be public about it. As I've examined myself, I used to get angry about the racial injustices that were happening, but I never took action. I was being complicit. I was not challenging those who were being outright oppressive. And that I wasn't using that holy rage for anything except making myself feel good that I felt mad about these things that were happening. Now as I continue to learn how to use that anger about things that would break God's heart, like racial oppression, to motivate me to action, much like the servant should have been motivated to action by the incredible grace he was given, much like we should be motivated to action by the incredible grace we are given. Sometimes when we feel anger rising up inside of us, we must take a pause, maybe say a prayer, and evaluate where that anger is coming from. Is it unrighteous anger or is it holy rage? As you take that time to sit with it, allow yourself to process it and any other feelings that come along with it. Anger often precedes forgiveness but the first step is often figuring out what kind of anger we're dealing with. From there, by faith, we are motivated to forgiveness and sometimes into a space of holy rage. Anger is a valid emotion, and sometimes it just takes some extra time to understand whether or not we should flip some tables or give immediate radical grace. Let us be moved from a space of cheap grace to an understanding that our emotions are valid, no matter your gender. God is good and can work through all things. Amen.